You are now listening to the December 31st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Disciples of Jesus Christ. In our last session, we spent our time talking about Apostle Paul. Paul, who originally didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, persecuted Christian churches. He thought believing in Jesus as the Messiah was against God, so he participated in the persecution of the early disciples of Jesus and put them in prison. He justified his acts by his own belief that he loved God. Then, there was an event when Paul encountered Jesus Christ. Acts 9, 1-5 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. The high priests were concerned about the growing movement of the followers of Jesus. Since there was an increase in the number of believers in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the high priests were the ones who took him and sentenced him to death through the leaders of the Roman pagans. Then, a Pharisee named Paul wanted to take charge to persecute Jesus' followers. It would be silly for a high priest to stop Paul, so they sent Paul a document as he requested. Paul, who went by the name of Saul at that time, was on his way to Damascus with a letter from the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem giving him authority to arrest anyone who belonged to the way, meaning those who followed Christ. Damascus was about 135 miles away, located northwest of Jerusalem. The reason Paul went to Damascus was because there were 40,000 to 50,000 Jews living in Damascus and there were 30 synagogues in which Jews gather for the Sabbath. After the first martyr, Stephen, Christians were scattered and a great number of Christians moved to Damascus. Although Christians left Jerusalem to avoid persecution, in Acts 8, verses 1 through 4, it says that they spread the teaching of the gospel. Paul wanted to stop Jesus' followers from spreading the message, Jesus is the Messiah, in the synagogues of Damascus, and he was confident to do it. It was Jesus who stopped Saul on the way to Damascus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. The light was not an ordinary light, 
but it was the light of God, the glory of Jesus. When the bright light blinded Paul, he could no longer remain standing, but fell to the ground, overwhelmed by what was happening. Saul recognized that this was a deity of light. Saul heard a voice in the light say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He must have been surprised. When Jesus identified himself as the very one Saul had been persecuting, the terror must have filled Saul's heart. Why? Because Saul had never thought about persecuting the amazing light. Thus, Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Can you imagine how much Saul was surprised when he heard the voice of Jesus? Saul had intended on opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In a raging fury, he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Here was a man who truly hated Christ and all who were associated with him. Then Jesus showed himself as the light and talked to Saul. Saul was speechless and began to think about his past endeavors of persecuting the followers of Jesus. Paul realized that what he had been doing for God was against God and recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah from God. Paul lost his sight after he encountered the light of Jesus. Jesus told Paul to go into Damascus and meet with someone who would lay hands on him. Since he could not see, he had to be helped along to Damascus by others. At Damascus, he also went for three days without eating or drinking. What would have Paul been thinking for three days? He must have repented, reflecting on his past life without eating or drinking, and he would have had time to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the Lord. Acts 9.11 tells us that Paul was praying. While Paul was praying for three days, Jesus told Ananias, who lived in Damascus, to lay hands on him, receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized, and be received by the disciples there. But Ananias was afraid to meet Paul, as he had heard many reports about Paul and all the harm he had done to the people in Jerusalem. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, as mentioned in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is the scene as Saul, who had been a persecutor of the followers of Christ, was now called to be the Apostle Paul. How could Paul make such a change in his life? We will continue on with Paul's story next time. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Myler of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Fear of the Lord. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. So one of the reoccurring themes, and I mentioned this last week, that I hear amongst Christians is the seeming lack of reverence within the church today, specifically within the Protestant church. I hear many Protestants say, well, you know, I'm not Catholic, and uh, but I kind of wish we were a little bit more reverent like the Catholics. And I hear that often, and I empathize with that. I really do. I get it. Those that have this concern, and I'm really kind of one of them, feel that the church has slowly drifted from a place that was once sacred and set apart to a place that is somewhat informal and rather common. Would you agree? I think many of us have that concern. Now, admittedly, there is a lot of subjectivity when it comes to making this type of assessment, and here's why. The fact is, just because someone or something appears to lack reverence doesn't mean that's the case necessarily at all. And that's precisely because, and this is very important, when we talk about the subject of reverence, it really is, first and foremost, a heart issue. It's where's your heart. Sometimes the external doesn't always look reverent, but the heart can be reverent, right? As an example of this, no one had a more reverent heart than Jesus. The Pharisees, of course, were among those who often felt that Jesus was being irreverent. They would often go to his disciples and say to us, tell us why. Tell us why your teacher, why your rabbi does this or he does that. They didn't understand. They went to the disciples like they understood totally what Jesus was doing. They often didn't understand either. So we want to be careful again, on the one hand, not to make rash judgments about what might appear to us to be irreverent behavior. But on the other hand, we certainly don't want to fall into the trap of treating common that which is holy. We don't want to fall into that trap either. The truth is, if we are not careful, it is possible to act irreverently. And in today's modern landscape of the church, you would think that it's almost impossible to do that. Well, anything goes in today's world and in today's church. But the fact is we can act irreverent if we are not careful. Very practical way that we can do this, just to get us started this morning, is when we as believers treat the name of the Lord in a common or careless fashion. Of course, Exodus, this is chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And there's a lot of ways that we can do this, where we can just treat God's name as common, or we can handle it carelessly. Of course, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, a prayer that we just prayed, what did he teach them to pray? Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed, may it be respected and revered. Now, with this being said, are those people who feel that the Protestant church in particular has slipped into patterns of irreverence justified in feeling that way? I think to a certain degree, they are. We are, because I'm kind of in that camp too. Let me give you two reasons why I think that is the case. The first reason is this. In an attempt to make the modern church seem more relevant, Protestants have actually adopted practices that are irreverent. We want to become relevant, but in the process, we have become irreverent. I think one way that this has manifested itself is the watering down and the softening of biblical truth. In an attempt to make the church seem more attractive, we have tried to sound less religious, right? And so as a result, churches over the last 20 or 30 years all over America stopped talking about things like sin, repentance, God's wrath, or the coming judgment of Christ. 
We wanted to be more attractive, and we thought, let's just sound less religious. If we sound less religious, we'll look more attractive. No topic, of course, in the Bible was off limits, as the gospel was often watered down so that the church could build its numbers up. Let's not tell them the gospel in its entirety, because if we do, people won't come. Let's tell them the hard stuff later. Let's just water it down until we think they're ready. Added to this was the church's desire to also divest itself of anything that looked Christian. That's right. We wanted our times of corporate worship to neither sound Christian nor look Christian, because in our minds, that would turn people off. As a result, crosses were taken down, stained glass windows were removed, smoke machines burst onto the scene. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, churches took on a very different feel. They looked different. They sounded different. They looked different. Which brings me to a second reason why I think people are justified in their concerns about the Protestant church slipping into patterns of irreverence. And that is, we have made God so common that we now border on being contemptuous. We have made God so unbelievably common that we border on being contemptuous. And what I mean by that is that we have let the pendulum swing from God being majestic and holy and set apart, completely other than us, to him being so radically near and like us that there is now no more reverence in us. So this is important. little theology. Ready? The Bible speaks of two important doctrines. The first is the transcendence of God. That means that God is transcendent. He is other than us. He is majestic and holy and set apart from his creation. He is not like us. He is spirit. He is God. He is eternal. But it also speaks of his imminence, meaning he is close to us and he is accessible to us and he loves us. So God is both transcendent and imminent. And if we fail to keep those two truths in proper balance, we're going to end up with either a God who is distant and unapproachable if all we do is focus on his transcendence, or one who is potentially casual and common, if all we ever talk about is his imminence. The fact of the matter is, even the most godly of people can cross that line from reverence to irreverence. Let me prove it to you. Even the best of them. When I mention the name Job, what do you think of? You think of a man that suffered. But you also think of a man who was righteous, and he was. He was a righteous man whom God allowed to be tested at the hands of Satan. He did wonderful in that test. Job resisted the temptation to curse God and die as his wife wanted him to do, bless her heart. (laughs) He also resisted the temptation to believe lies about God, which his friends wanted him to do, his three friends wanted him to do. Nevertheless, there is a point somewhere in the book of Job where he seemed to have crossed the line. He pressed things a little bit too hard, enough so that in Job chapter 38, God asked Job a series of questions to put him in his place. A friend of mine who was a judge, and I've mentioned this before, who's a judge here in Arizona, said this is the most withering cross-examination in all of Scripture. Listen to what God says to Job to put him in his place. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "'Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge?' Gulp. (laughs) Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Folks, this is just a taste of what God does to Job in chapter 38. After God is done with this withering cross-examination, Job responds as he should. 
with reverence and humility and repentance. Listen to the words of Job. It's beautiful. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Folks, if we are not careful, even the best of us, the best of churches, the best of families can fall into patterns of irreverence if we are not careful. So with that being said, when it comes to the topic of reverence, where do we start? Where in the world would we possibly start on this subject? Well, I think a good place to start is where the scriptures tell us to start, and that is with the issue of fearing the Lord. The Bible has much to say about this. Psalm 111.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. Uh, Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One, insight. And then Psalm 14.27 says this, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If anyone ever asks you to disciple them and you're not sure where to start, start here. Start here and stay here until this is crystal clear. Amen? Start here and stay here until this is crystal clear. Not in just those that you're discipling, but in your own life and in the life of your family. Start here and stay here until this is crystal clear, because if you try to build on a foundation other than this, you're going to build on a shoddy, weak foundation. By the way, this also applies to when we preach the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we should leave those who are listening to us with a sense of awe and reverence of the God that we are proclaiming to them. Amen? If we proclaim to them a passive, weak God, there's going to be no fear in them. You go, well, we don't want to introduce the fear of the Lord right away. Yes, you do. You want them to tremble before the God that is about to judge them. The wrath of God abides on them. We want them to fear the Lord from the earliest possible moment when we proclaim them to him. Do you want to know um, that this is in the Bible? I'm not making this stuff up. Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians, listen to this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed. When we preach the gospel, yes, we want people to know that God is accessible. He's merciful and kind. He draws close to us. He drew close to us in the sending of his son to die for us, but we don't want them to lose sight of the fact that this is a God who created all things and he exists, as the Bible says, as consuming fire. Amen? The transcendence of God and the imminence of God are two truths that we want to hold near and dear at all times in our lives. In this sense, the gospel is both terrifying and terrific. It's terrifying in that we are all going to stand before a God who the Bible says exists in unapproachable light, who is, who is a consuming fire. But it is terrific in that there is total forgiveness of sins of those that place their faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the gospel. It is both terrifying and terrific. Now, the pressing question this morning then becomes this. What exactly does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to? What does it look like on a daily basis? Now, to answer this question, I want to start with a little bit of church history. Compliments of one of my favorite theologians, the late, great Dr. R.C. Sproul. Anybody know Dr. R.C. Sproul? You know that name? One of the best ever. Dr. Sproul 
points out that the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther made a distinction when it came to the topic of the fear of the Lord. Specifically, Luther distinguished between two things. The first was this, servile fear, and that's Latin for slave. Servile fear is the type of fear that a slave would have at the hands of a malicious master who would come to whip and torment him. Or the kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber might feel for his tormentor, the jailer, or the executioner. It's the kind of dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that is represented by a vicious person. And perhaps you can relate to that if you've ever been around somebody who's out of control to the point where you were literally afraid for your safety. If you've ever been in that environment, that's, I think, what Luther's talking about here. On the other hand, Luther talked about what was called a filial fear. And that's Latin for family and refers to the type of fear that a child has for his father. This is the child who sees his father as both sympathetic yet strong, patient yet powerful, kind yet caring, merciful yet mighty. In that sense, the child knows that he can run to his father and jump in his arms, but at the same time, he stands in awe of his dad. He is his hero. It's an awe-inspiring respect for his father. And this distinction by Luther is incredibly helpful, and it becomes even more helpful when we survey the scriptures, because you know what happens when we survey the scriptures? We see a God that is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. Let me give you a really good example of a man who experienced that firsthand. It was Moses, and it was when he was on Mount Sinai. Church, hear the word of God. Listen to this passage, because in it we see a man who is talking to God face-to-face as one talks to a friend, and another one who is told that if you see me, you'll die. (laughs) Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. And while my glory passes by you, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face you shall not be seen. Wow. You shall see my back. What in the world does that mean? What does the back of God look like? I can tell you this much, whatever Moses saw, it caused his face to glow. It it caused his face to glow. When Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that his skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God face to face as one talks to a friend and Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Incredible. The people were afraid to come near Moses because Moses had been near God. By the way, side note, do you want to know why our culture is so out of control? Because there's no fear of God in the eyes of anyone. But you know why there's no fear of God in the eyes of anyone? I would argue that the church is to blame for that. We have preached a passive, wimpy God over the last 30 or 40 years. We have not preached a God that is going to hold men accountable and bring them into judgment, all of us. A God that exists in unapproachable light, in consuming fire. We have not preached that God. And so not only has the church not feared the Lord, 
The world doesn't either. Listen, the church, the world should be looking at the church and seeing a group of people who walk humbly before their God in reverent fear and awe of the one who created all things, both seen and unseen. Our God is a consuming fire. This is a powerful display, by the way, of the utter, the incredible accessibility of God and the utter incomprehensibility of God all on display in one passage. Moses drawing near to God, talking to him face to face as one talks to a friend, and yet one who cannot even look upon God because he'll die, but he sees the backside and his face glows. It's better than Mary Kay. Go into the presence of the Lord. (laughs) Go into the presence of the Lord and your face will glow. When a person draws near to God, we must remember, folks, we are not just drawing near to anyone. We're not drawing near to a governor or a prince or a king or a president. We are drawing near to the one who the Bible says is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy chapter 4, they're warning them about making idols. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Don't make carved images. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, just about giving our glory to carved images. But then it says this, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. We see this very thing in the New Testament as well. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now listen to this. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Folks, there is a form of unacceptable worship that can be rendered to God. Do you know that? And if we are not careful, even the best of us, even the Jobs, can cross that line. And this is a teaser for next week. Whatever you do, do not miss next week's sermon because we're going to be talking about what it looks like to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And I've already written the message and I'm going to refine it this week, but I'm going to tell you, you don't want to miss that message. I think another powerful example of God drawing near to his creation yet being totally set apart from his creation is the Mount, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. By the way, if you come to Israel with me and with the Shulers, you're going to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll see all of these places in the Bible. Listen to this. Listen, this is Jesus who draw near, drew near to the disciples in the flesh. That's how near he came to them. But in a moment when the veil is lifted, even for a second, what do they see? They see this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, bless his heart, said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, we'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Okay. (laughs) He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. What does that word say? Terrified. And by the way, let me just say something right here. There's a lot of modern day people on TV and on the radio and preachers who are, they're going to say, well, I saw a vision of God. I saw this. I saw that. No, they didn't. First of all, they didn't. But secondly, if they did, they would have fallen on their faces terrified but they never do. It's like, I saw God and he told me something. You know, I got special revelation from God. God, listen guys, the the scriptures are sufficient. If you want to know men who truly saw God, go to the Bible. These three men saw Jesus in his glory and they fell at his feet as though terrified. That is the transcendence of God. 
But the very next verse speaks of the imminence of God, the closeness of God, because what does Jesus say? But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. See, that's the balance that we must maintain. God is transcendent. He's glorious. He's majestic. We walk into his presence humbly, grateful, full of thanksgiving at all times and in all ways, knowing that he didn't owe us anything, but he gave us everything. But on the flip side of it, we're children. And we're commanded by the scriptures to come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence to receive help in our time of need. This is the God that you and I serve. He's both transcendent and imminent. Jesus is the ultimate example of a God drawing near while also being a God whom we should fear. Again, the fear that we're talking about is not a malicious type of fear of somebody that we're afraid of, but the awe-inspiring fear of a son that respects his father. Now, here's the kicker. You want to know what it means to fear the Lord? You might be surprised. You do it all the time. You just don't realize it. You fear the Lord more than you think. And let me prove it to you. The reality is, is that whenever we read in the scriptures of people marveling at the greatness of God, the supremacy of God, the holiness of God, or any other aspect of God, when you do that, you are reading about people that are standing in awe-inspiring fear and reverence of the Lord. Let me prove it to you. Listen to the words of David. David is marveling in this passage at the omniscience of God, that God knows all things, but more specifically, how intimately God knows David. And then listen to David's response at the end of this. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Now listen to this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. I cannot attain it. David, when he considers the omniscience of God, is utterly dumbfounded in his presence. Folks, this is a man who's standing in awe-inspiring fear of the Lord. And by the way, anytime you do that too, that's you honoring the Lord and walking in fear and reverence of him. Think about it. The God that created billions of galaxies, trillions of stars, of which the Bible says he calls them all by name. The God that knows the name of every star in the universe, who created all things seen and unseen, meaning all the angels, the glorious angels that fly before the throne of grace, that if we could see even the angels, we would fall before them as though terrified and dead. And yet the God that has done all that loves you. He knows you. He knows you better than you. He knows you inside and out. He's gracious and kind to you. This is the God that you serve. Stand in awe of this God. This God manages and controls everything in this universe. As Dr. R.C. Sproul once said, is there, if there's even one rogue molecule in all the universe, God is not sovereign, but God is, in, God is sovereign over all things at all times. But here's the kicker. The God that is sovereign over all things at all times loves you enough to send his son to die for you. He loves you and knows every aspect about you. All the, all the skeletons in the closet, all the good things, all the bad, he knows it all. This is the God that you serve. Paul, by the way, also had a similar awe-inspiring perspective of God's omniscience. Listen to this passage. This is Paul talking like David. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. This is a man who fears the Lord. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. 
Folks, these are two men that stand, are standing in awe, reverent awe of the Lord. And by the way, here's the point. Whenever you stand before God and you're like, Lord, you are amazing and you're just blown away, that is you walking in fear of the Lord and, and, and being reverent and humble before him. And it might be because of God's omniscience or his omnipotence, you know, that he's all powerful. Or it could be something as simple, I say as simple as God's incredible love for you. Oh, by the way, Paul marveled at that too. Listen to this, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. There's a man that is marveling at the love of God. Whenever we stand in awe of God's greatness, his power, his majesty, his glory, his grace, his forgiveness, whatever it might be, that is a person that's standing in fear and reverence of the Lord. The disciples experienced this when Jesus did miracles. Remember when he calmed the water? What does it say? And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Folks, the more that we mature in our understanding of God's greatness, his power, his majesty, his glory, his grace, and his forgiveness, the more we can't help but walk in humble fear of the one that we serve. And folks, that is exactly what the world needs to see from those of us who are Christians. It needs to see a people who walk and hold in balance both the transcendence and imminence of God, that we are a people that fall before him and worship him because he is majestic and holy, but we are a God that also runs into his arms like little child, like little children when we need, need him in our time of need. Amen? Walking humbly before our God, this is what the Bible calls us to do. Micah, you know this passage. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That sense of humility, by the way, that we are to have before our God, Jesus talked about it. Listen to this passage. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have done what was our duty. This is what it means to walk humbly before our God. He is a God that loves us enough to send his one and only son to die for us. And he draws near to us and loves us on a very intimate level. But folks, lest we ever forget that we come before the Lord who exists in consuming fire and unapproachable light, we never want to lose sight of that. On the one hand, we are redeemed, forgiven, loved, and accepted, forever adopted into the family of God. On the other hand, we walk humbly before the God we serve. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to wrap up with this. We might look around at the church today, the world today, and think, well, everybody's, there's no reverence anymore. Listen, the bigger question is, what do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you have a reverent heart before God? Do you fear him? Do you walk in obedience to him? Do you trust him and love him? Do you honor his name? Do you proclaim his glory? Are you ashamed of him? Ashamed to proclaim him? 
See, the temptation is going to be strong to assimilate to the world. The world is going to say, well, we want God to be like this. Well, here's the thing. That's called an idol. I don't care what the world thinks of God. I care what the Bible says about God. And our God is a God that is both transcendent and imminent, and we need to hold those in balance. I finish with this. I'm going to tell you something maybe many of you didn't know. Many of you are, this congregation is incredibly smart. Those that are watching online, incredibly smart. But let me tell you something maybe you didn't know. You all know John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3, 16. Do you know what Malachi 3, 16 says? Malachi 3.16, it's a passage in which the Bible says, the Lord took notice of those who feared him and talked about him, and a scroll of remembrance was made in the presence of God, and the names of those who feared him were written down in that scroll. Listen to this, Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Incredible. Raises a really interesting theological question. Are those who fear him even today still being added to that scroll? Are the names of those who fear him and talk about him today still being added to that scroll? I don't know. But of this you can be certain based upon this verse. God has regard for those who fear him. Amen? God has regard for those who fear him. Don't look at the world and be discouraged. Don't look at the world and say, well, everyone else has lowered their standards. Maybe I should. You don't do that. We don't do that. We remain a church, an individual. We, we lead our families with an awe-inspiring respect of the God that we serve. Amen? At all times and in all ways. And when we proclaim the gospel, we're not afraid to tell them of the God that they are about to stand in judgment of, a God that consists in consuming, consuming fire and that stands ready to judge you, but is so merciful that he sent his son to die for you. Run to him while you can. Repent and believe upon him while you can. This is what we need to proclaim. We need to proclaim it boldly and proudly. We need not be afraid of what the scriptures say about the God that we serve. Amen? So go boldly today. Serve the Lord your God. He has redeemed you. He has called you by name. You are his child. Run into his arms to receive help in your time of need. But don't err where Job erred. Don't get too big for your britches. Remember the one that you serve. God who owes you nothing gave you everything. You are here to serve him.
can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Brothers and sisters, back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter is not saying that it might happen. He is saying that it will happen inspired by the Spirit. God is warning us, just like in Old Testament Israel, how bad guys arose amongst Israel, the same thing will happen in the church, among you, among believers. It's not talking about cults and false places over there. He's talking about among believers. This will happen. They will arise among you. The threat is real. It happened and it will happen. Guaranteed because God says so. And the threat, as we're going to see, is a threat in regards to the Word of God, that which God uses to grow us in our relationship with Jesus. That's where the threat is. That's where these attacks are going to be. There will be also false teachers among you. So the first thing, how can we avoid being exploited by false teachers, which there are a lot of believers being exploited by false teachers? I'll tell you that right now. How can we avoid being exploited? First of all, we need to know that they will come. First thing. The second thing, we need to know what they do. Actually, what is it that they will do and what awaits them? Again, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Notice and this is what he says here. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. What will they do when they come up in the midst of the body of Christ? They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even to the point, as we're going to see, of denying the master who bought them. This term secretly introduced means just that. In secret, something is interjected. It is introduced. It is introduced in a way that is, there's one translation, on the sly. It slipped in. It's brought in in a way that is secret. 
It is secretly introduced. Now the term heresy here comes from a word in the Greek that speaks of divisions and factions. And ultimately that's what the word initially meant, but what heresies do is they actually do divide the church up. They create factions. And notice he says destructive. These teachings bring spiritual ruin. And this is among believers. And there are a lot of spiritually, temporarily ruined believers in the body of Christ whose relationship with Jesus is basically nil because they have bought into these destructive heresies. They have been exploited, as we will see, by false words. They have been carried away by the error of unprincipled men. They have not held their steadfastness, which we, if we are equipped and we understand the truth and we trust in the Lord, will not be carried away. False teachers will secretly introduce things that ruin your walk with Jesus. Well, what ruins your walk with Jesus? Our walk is by faith through the truth of God, right? Those are the attacks where we begin to rely on ourselves, we become prideful, whatever it might be. We don't take God's word for what it really is in certain elements, even though believers believe it's God's word. False teachers will secretly introduce things that will ruin your walk, destroy your walk with Jesus temporarily, that you would be ineffective and not useful or fruitful in your relationship with Jesus Christ. They do it in secret. It is not obvious. It is in secret. It is slipped in. It is a slight addition. It is a slight twist. It is secretive, and we need to see this. There is danger out there in the church. So we need to know the Word of God so that when someone twists the Word of God or puts a slight twist on it, we do not fall captive to those deceptive things and become tossed to and fro and baited by the trickery of men in deceitful scheming. So notice these destructive heresies can go ultimately as far as the ultimate heresy. Look at verse 1 again. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, that's believers, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even, you could say this, even to the point of denying the master who bought them. He's not saying every false teacher is going to introduce that heresy of denying Jesus. He's saying it can go up even to that point even to the point of denying the master. So don't think the heresy that they bring is denying the master. It goes all the way up to that point. Now this phrase, denying the master who bought them, is speaking in reference to the false teachers in context. And then this phrase has brought a lot of or caused a lot of consternation and spiritual gyration in interpreters who hold to a hyper-Calvinistic viewpoint rather than letting the scriptures say what they say. There's been a lot of song and dances interpreted to say, what does this mean? How can it be that false teachers who are on their way in context to destruction have a master who bought them? How is this? Now the issue that's being spoken of here, theologians call the extent of the atonement. And that's not what this passage is about, so I'm not going to make the sermon about that. But I want to share a brief piece of that and then go back to the important portion of this passage. The question is, for whom did Christ die for? Who did he die for? Did he die for everyone, or did he die only for the elect? For whom does his work on the cross apply to? Who is it open to? The extent of the atonement. Now, I've heard it said by hard five-point Calvinists that use logic and reason that no one would 
ever say that Jesus died for everyone but only the elect. Because if he died for everyone, then he failed in saving everyone. Well, is it just reason? Let's just settle that aside. Let's listen to what Scripture has to say. We know ultimately that the work on the cross that Jesus did will only apply to those who believe in him, right? Bottom line, he died for our sins, but that will only apply to those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the elect. That's the reality is. It's only going to apply to those who believe. That's biblical, right? So we see that. But also, what about the offer of salvation? Some would say through reason, then the offer of salvation is not genuine. Well, the reality is, Scripture shows that it is. We see in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is genuine to every person. And if you reject it, you reject it on your own, and you receive the punishment in your sins. We see in 1 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We need to be careful that we don't allow certain doctrines to override other portions of Scripture. We need to see all Scripture on a level and the things we don't understand, how it works out. We need to say, I'm not God. We're not God. God is. We don't understand those things. But this is what he says, and I believe it. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. After talking about praying for those in office, praying for leaders, praying for those who are not saved, that we would be able to live a quiet life, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You look at the Lord Jesus, even amidst those Pharisees and the wicked Israel who would actually crucify him, who would lead him up to... He still said, believe. He shared for three years the truth with them, and it was only until they rejected him that he pulled away that truth from them. When they hardened their hearts and their ears were clogged because of hard hearts. He says here, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. And there are other passages I'll share, but i just show these ones, because this is not the point of our passage, but I have to address it. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. Amen. God's word is what helps us not sin, right? It's the food for our relationship with Jesus. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. 1 John 2, 2. And he himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins, not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, not everyone, but whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life, right? So our passage says, even denying the master who bought them. Well, they were portraying themselves to be believers, right? They were portraying themselves to be those who had been bought by the master, obviously. So what's the solution? Jesus Christ's death ultimately applies to those who believe. But it is sufficient. The offer is genuine to everyone. That's all I can say. The rest, let God explain it to us when we get to heaven, right? His death is sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who believe. Okay? So let's not get sidetracked. This point of our passage is that these people are introducing destructive, separating heresies, even to the point of denying Jesus. So let's not stray into those arguments and let's stay focused on what God is saying. So back to our passage. 
in 2 Peter chapter 2. These false teachers who will be among you will slip in secretly, device of separating, destructive teaching, ruinous teaching. And Peter elaborates later in this letter, and we're going to look at this more closely, that they will exploit you with false words. Look at verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The term false comes from the Greek word plastois. It's where we get our word plastic. Molded. Molded words. They're going to exploit you with fabricated, molded words. They're going to secretly move the words around to exploit you. So we're going to see. You look down in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. Verse 18, arrogant words of vanity. They are large, giant spiritual stuff, but it is empty. It's arrogant words of vanity. So they introduce destructive heresies, exploit you with plastic words or, or molded words. And notice they also here, as I shared, speak out arrogant words of vanity or nothing. They are clouds without water. You think it's going to rain, but it doesn't rain because what they ultimately say isn't what you think they actually are going to say. It's empty. And notice with these false, empty, arrogant words, they will also attack the veracity of God's truth. The term veracity speaks of truthfulness. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come in their mocking, following after their own lust. That's a pattern for false guys. They fall after their own desires, by the way. Saying, where is the promise of his coming? They're mocking the truth of God concerning Christ coming again. Very serious. They're demeaning the truth of God. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was in the beginning of creation. They're mocking. And then look down at the end of chapter 3 in verse 15. Peter says, In regard to patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. By the way, some doctrine, some truth, that Paul writes is hard to understand. And notice what he says here, which the untaught and unstable distort. The word means twist. They take difficult passages of Scripture and they twist them as they do the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and you fall from your steadfastness. We need to realize they take God's word, they distort it, they share empty and destructive words, they minimize and mock certain things, and they twist and distort the difficult passages of Scripture. And all of this is secretly introduced. Secretly. It's not evident on the surface initially. Look at Jude, right before Revelation, right before Revelation, Jude Verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered once for all the saints. The faith is the body of truth that we believe that was delivered to the church, to the saints. Verse 4, 
For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They snuck in. They're in. Right? Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's secretive. They crept in unnoticed. They snuck in. There are false teachers in the church, just like there were false prophets in Israel. There are false teachers. And this is what they look like and what they will do. They will twist God's word and secretly introduce destructive, divisive heresies. That's what they will do. And it will affect our walk with Jesus. And it will be ruined if we follow that teaching. It will be ruined. We're going to see a little more in a minute. Now, notice this is serious stuff that we need to take serious because God takes it serious. Notice at the end of verse 1, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The term swift means imminent. Imminent destruction. God doesn't miss it. We can see it when we see the false words. We test it with Scripture. But God doesn't miss them. He's going to take care of them. Their actions will bring upon themselves swift, eternal destruction, as we'll see. If you look down in verse 3, it says, Judgment is not idle, destruction is not asleep. Verse 9, they're being kept under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 12, will be destroyed. Verse 17, black darkness has been reserved for them. God is not missing a beat. False guys are in deep eternal trouble. And their eternal damnation is being reserved. It's ready for them. It's imminent. You see, as we're going to see, for someone who has known the way of truth, they've known the truth, and to become a false teacher, having known the truth, rejecting Jesus, here, what we see is that black darkness is reserved for them. Very clearly, they bring destruction upon themselves. So then we must know that there are false teachers in the church. We must know they'll introduce destructive heresies. We must know they'll do it by secretly twisting, lessening, exploiting with false words, empty words. Their teachings will be introduced secretly and will affect your relationship with Jesus. It'll ruin it. You see, if I buy into something contrary to the word, my walk with Jesus is temporarily ruined. I'm not growing. If I buy into something different. We're going to see some examples in a few minutes here. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Well, what will the effect on the church be as this happens? Look at verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. Many. That's speaking within the church. Within the church, many will follow their Sensuality. The term will follow speaks of obeying or imitating or following after. They're going to imitate their sensuality. What does this term sensuality mean? What does it mean? Obviously, they're introducing things secretly, so they're not openly actually having sensual conduct. But he says many will follow their brand in a sense of sensuality. Their sensuality. The term sensuality is the exact same word translated licentiousness in Jude. It means without moral restraint. It speaks of lustful indulgence or wantonness, just desires. Many will follow their desires. You could say it that way. It's subtle. Instead of God's word convicting of sin, correcting that we would walk rightly with Jesus, 
False teachers will twist things so that there is basically an okay to sin, a license to sin, licentiousness. What false teachers do is lessen the word of God so that we're not convicted, we're not corrected, we're not trained, and we can kind of go in our way with sin in our lives. And our lives are ruined, at least our relationship with Jesus is temporarily ruined because we're not dealing with sin because the word is not convicting us of sin, it's allowing it because it's been twisted. It's been twisted. And folks, this is going on in all kinds of churches where men have arose who are subtly twisting things. It says many will imitate, follow after, or obey their sensuality. It's their brand, their brand of sensuality. Boy, we see this throughout the church where believers are given a license to live in a worldly manner because of God's grace. A license to live in a worldly manner. Where pastors don't address sin, but they make you feel good about Jesus through their movie clips and all sorts of junk and a verse here and there. Rather than allowing the word of God, which should convict us of our sin, because I'm so sinful, you're so sinful, we need to be convicted and then let God correct us and train us. They'll secretly introduce destructive, separating heresies. Look again down at verse 18 of chapter 2. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, these lofty, empty words, they're lofty and empty. Listen to an evangelical sermon. Go on the Internet and listen to some of these churches. They are lofty, but there's nothing there. For speaking out lofty words, he says, arrogant words of vanity, they, the bad guys, entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, who those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom in their twisted words of saying, you're going to be free from sin, but they're not actually promising them true freedom because of their twisted words. While they themselves are slaves to corruption, for what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.